If you love the History Extra podcast and want to help us keep bringing you brilliant episodes, then please share it with a friend or a fellow history fan who you think might enjoy it. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This Father's Day, the Home Depot has same-day delivery on the perfect gift to help dad be everything he can be. Because your dad is more than just a dad. He's groundskeeper of the yard, the perfecter of the patio, and the cleaner of the clippings. Let the Home Depot help power dad's doing with the convenience and gas-like power of Milwaukee cordless outdoor tools. Plus, get up to $150 off select Milwaukee tools. For everything dad is, find the perfect gift at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Reveal. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. Being a student at Oxford University in the Roaring Twenties was quite the party. But, as Daisy Dunn reveals in her new book, Not Far From Brideshead, all of that changed in the 1930s, as totalitarianism cast a long shadow and the clouds of war began to gather. Here, in conversation with Spencer Mizzen, Daisy tells a story that takes in Evelyn War, Vera Britton, philosophical disputes and outrageous student behaviour. So Daisy, your new book, Not Far From Brideshead, is about life at Oxford University between the two world wars. Now, you studied classics at Oxford yourself, didn't you? I mean, we obviously don't need to, to say in which decade, but um, how do you think the, the university has changed in, in the period between the era you studied there and the time you, you're researching in the book? Well, I did study at Oxford and certainly wasn't between the First and the Second World War, um, not quite that old. Um, but I would say that the university, in, in many ways, it's quite similar because I think it has a lot of traditions which are still held. I mean, students wear these lovely sort of big gowns, for example, to do their exams. Um, and you know, there are a lot of cyclists going through the city. And I think lots of the buildings and the architecture are obviously the same. I think what's really changed is the fabric of the student body itself. In the period I'm writing about, the students were predominantly male for a start. Um, they're predominantly British. There were, I think during the, the First World War, you started to see people coming in um, from more and more countries, got sort of more Rhodes Scholars coming in, more Americans um, filling in sort of the, the, the gaps as people went off to to fight during the First World War. But in terms of sort of diversity, it wasn't a very diverse place. It, it was, um, you know, nothing like it, it is today where you've got a very sort of international university, you've got a large proportion of the students, particularly graduates coming from overseas. That just wasn't the case. 
Now, you write in the preface to the book that, that this is a, a classicist portrait of Oxford University between the wars. I mean, what, what exactly do you mean by that? What is the significance of it being a classicist's eye view of the university? Well, when I sat down to write this book, I, I wanted to write a book about Oxford, but I was very aware that I think almost everyone you still have heard of living in the 1920s and 1930s, nearly all of them seem to have been at either Oxford or Cambridge. Um, you sort of, and there have been lots of books on on uh, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis and the Inklings in Oxford, or on Evelyn Waugh and his circle, and on prime ministers who've been educated at Oxford and, and other writers such as Aldous Huxley and T.S. Eliot. But I thought, well, I, I'm a classicist and I, I'm drawn to other classicists. And there, there was a group of really quite interesting classicists at Oxford in that period who actually connect us to a lot of those people I've already mentioned. So I thought I'd frame my narrative through the gaze of, of classicists predominantly. So I have sort of at, this, at the centre of my narrative a group of them who connect us to a lot of the, these other people. And, you know, I, I focus in on how classics became part of the national conversation between the world wars. I think particularly with, with the rise of Nazis, for example, they were looking a lot to the classical past and subverting it. And there was really quite a battle on to to preserve classical history as as it should be, rather than sort of being used as as propaganda. So it seemed to be a, a really interesting subject and sort of marriage between between the, the period and and the subject itself, which I've kind of dedicated my life to studying. Now the book starts uh, with the end of the First World War, a, a conflict that, as you point out, ravaged the university population cutting short the young lives of 2,857 of its members. So what was the mood like at the university in the, in the immediate post-war years? Well, I think straight after the First World War, there was a sense of huge excitement on the part of many of the students who were coming up, especially those who'd served in the war, who thought they were now making a fresh start in a completely wonderful place that looked idyllic after everything they'd seen for the past four years. But I think that sense of excitement often changed into something quite different once they'd actually enrolled at the university because there were, there were still many signs of the war actually in Oxford itself. The city had been overtaken by something called the Third Southern General Hospital, and many of the buildings had been taken over sort of to, to treat soldiers and, and the wounded. So even after sort of the, the medical tents, for example, had been moved out of the quads, the lawns were still brown as a result of that. There was um, a, a doormat outside examination schools where students sat their, their papers saying this is the hospital. And you know, many of the students coming up, they were suffering from the beginnings of shell shock. And I think overall, I mean, there was there was quite a strange, uneasy mix of, of people who who had served in the war and of schoolboys who hadn't had any sort of first-hand experience of battle. And, and also women whose experience was probably quite different. I mean, one of the women I include in my narrative is, is Vera Britton. I think sort of many people listening to this would have read her wonderful memoir, Testaments of Youth. And she actually described returning to Oxford after the war and she said that she suffered from sinister hallucinations. So there was that kind of, uh, of mood to it. But then there was also alongside it a real sense of carpe diem. I think students really wanting to make the most out of Oxford and throw themselves into its life as heartily as possible after everything that they'd gone through. So was there a tension between those who had fought in the war and those were, who basically hadn't were a bit more fresh-faced? 
I think there was. I mean, I, I reading some of the accounts of, of people who were there, um, one person in particular describes it being it's almost quite hierarchical. He said it's, it's quite divided. You know, there are, there are groups in the dining hall and people would still sit in their circles. There'd be the schoolboys in one corner. There'd be what he'd call the, the brontosaurs and the other who were the sort of the survivals from before the war began. And then there'd be the, the sort of the generals who had a whole different vocabulary. They were sort of using completely different language you know, learned from, from the war in Oxford. So it was a very sort of divided place and a, a really sort of strange mix. And I think the gulf between the, the even in, in one year group, the gulf was quite big between those who'd served and those who hadn't. I think obviously that those who had seen service seemed a lot older than those who come straight from, from war. So it was a very, very strange time. You also write that after the horrors of the First World War, to many students, Oxford promised to, to be some kind of Arcadia. I mean, did it live up to that promise? After the initial shock, it seemed to offer some respite to many of those students who did come up. Um, for a start, it, it was and it remains visually beautiful. I mean, you know, there, there are so many opportunities for having wonderful walks over sort of Boar's Hill, looking at the famous skyline and the dreaming spires and the college gardens and the quads and the river with its punting and its rowing and the picnics and the chapels and the churches. And so there's just the sheer wonder of the place. And I think alongside that intellectually, it was obviously hugely stimulating for these students. And I think they probably got a lot out of placing their focus very intensely on their subject area. It's almost a, a sense of distraction. And of course, I mean, I say in the book, it, it's not perfect. Um, it, it had its problems. But in, in many ways, it was just what young people needed in the wake of, of unimaginable horror. And it, it sort of offered, it offered an attractive stepping stone to freedom and independence. Now, the title of the book is obviously heavily influenced by Evelyn Waugh's classic novel, Brideshead Revisited, much of which is based in interwar Oxford. To what extent did Wall draw on real life people who studied at the university between the wars when creating the the, the characters for his for his novel? Well, uh, War came up to Oxford. He studied at Hertford College uh, from 1922, and he didn't actually complete his degree, but he did certainly get a lot out of his experience at the university. Um, as you say, part of that was drawing experience and sort of inspiration from some of the people he met. And I think there are, there are really quite clear echoes of his time at the university in his uh, descriptions in both Decline and Fall and Brideshead Revisited. So several of the characters, for example, were based on his friends or at least sort of amalgamations of people that he met at Oxford. So, for example, um, Anthony Blanche, who's a sort of very fashionable, uh, quite outrageous student uh, in Brideshead, he was based on Harold Acton, who was a student for known for being really quite a trendsetter in Oxford. He used to wear silk stockings and a bowler hat and these ridiculous, huge pleated trousers, which were known as Oxford bags. And he started wearing them and everyone else was wearing them as well. Uh, so he, he was sort of one of the people at the centre uh, of the book. Uh, Sebastian Flight, he was based partly on one of War's lovers at university, Alistair Graham. But uh, one thing that sort of surprised me when I was researching this, um, he, he, you know, Sebastian carries around this teddy bear 
Aloysius. And, and Brian said, the real inspiration for that is more likely John Betjeman, the great poet. Apparently he used to walk around Oxford with a teddy bear. Um, not called that, his teddy bear was called Archie. So you've got a sort of a mixture of those two. Uh, and uh, another sort of the, the favourite characters of, of mine, actually, in Brian's head is, is Mr. Sam Grass. He's rather a treacly, kind of obsequious character. He's the Don who's sent to monitor Sebastian Flight's behaviour as he kind of descends into this rather dire alcoholism. He was based on the classicist Morris Bower, who has a major role uh, in my book. Yeah, can you tell us a bit more about Bower? Because as you just said there, he, he's a, he does play a, a large role in the book. Can you, can you just tell, introduce us to him a little bit, please? Well, Morris Barrett was acquainted with Evan Wall um, when they were at Oxford, but they, you know, they didn't sort of get to know each other especially well. And um, it was sort of later in life that they really connected and did get to know each other. Morris Barrow, he fought on the Western Front. He came up then as a student at New College and he then became a classics don at Wadham, which is where he kind of stayed really for the rest of his life. And he was known for for being a great wit. Um, He was quite a socialite. He was good friends uh, with uh, Lady Otterline Morell at Garsington Manor, for example. He befriended Kenneth Clark of Civilization fame, who credited Morris Barrow as being the greatest influence on his life. He taught Cecil Day Lewis. He taught sort of lots of other um, people that we've got to know. So John Betjeman is another one he kind of took under his wing. And he was very, very funny. I mean, he'd say things like, you know, he's giving someone the warm shoulder or he's having a, a long and interesting silence with a stranger. The sort of thing, <laughs> thing that he'd come up with. And uh, there's a sort of a, an anecdote which probably isn't true about him. He was supposedly, he was spotted bathing at the male bathing site in Oxford Parsons Pleasure and some women happened upon him and these other men as they were naked and all the other men covered their genitals, but he covered his face. Instead, because he knew, he knew he, which part of him, at least to, to uh, his friends, would be sort of more recognisable. So he was a, an interesting uh, character, and he was also quite a character, and he was also gay, and that was kind of difficult actually at this time in Oxford, and he couldn't be completely open about that because of of the fact. I mean, you know, homosexuality was still illegal in this period, and it was kind of an open secret among you know his close circle, but. In terms of the, the broader university, it really wasn't. He had to keep it quiet. The elites, and the aristocracy, the upper classes, they, they, they loom very large in Moore's novel. I mean, is this an accurate reflection of the makeup of the university in, in the 1920s and 30s? What was it like to be a student from the lower classes in, in this period in history? I think extremely difficult. I mean, we, we hear a lot more about the aristocratic rich members because they, there, there were a lot of them in Oxford and, and, the, and the poet Stephen Spender he said something interesting he said that the working class students in the 1920s were so far uh, in the minority that they were simply the most obscure and most ground down members of their colleges and I mean it, it, it wasn't sort of necessarily the case that they were um, sort of barred from Oxford in any way it's just I mean the fact was it was actually really expensive to study at Oxford, it was at least £300 a year, which was a lot at that time. And there weren't nearly the sort of number of bursaries that there are available today uh, to assist those who are kind of reliant on really excelling in your exams as you went along in your work to try and win scholarships if you wanted to to get ahead. So there just weren't the opportunities at all. And, you know, it it, it was a different time from now. Did that change at all? During the interwar period, did opportunities open up 
They they began to, and I think particularly for for women. I mean, I think where I begin my book in 1914, there are only about 100 or so women studying there. As men are disappearing, more and more women sort of arrive. But I think, you know, as a woman, and probably you know, as anyone looking back on on the period of uh, this period of Oxford and, and women in particular, you feel quite angry, actually. I mean, it, it's only in 1910 that women are actually even formally recognised as members of the university at all. And at this time, I mean, they're, they're studying the same syllabus as the men, they're doing the same exams, going to the same lectures. At the end of it all, they just get certificates when they leave rather than proper degrees. Um, and that changes, I kind of track this change in 1919, a bill is passed so that women are able to do so. So the first women begin to get degrees from 1920 and 1921 in Oxford. But even then, they're kind of resigned to their five colleges, um, one of which was St Hilda's, which I actually studied at when it was still female. And in my final year, it, it went mixed. Um, but those colleges weren't on an equal footing with the men's. It was sort of only in 1926 that they got royal charters, which put them on a kind of on a par. And then, I mean, the really kind of like nail in the coffin that makes me so angry is in, in 1927, uh, a proposal is, is made to limit the number of women studying at Oxford. So a cap is actually placed. Why was that? Why, why would they do that? I think what it was is they were starting to graduate in, in steadily increasing numbers and the male authorities are just really flustered by this. So there are a lot of people speaking against the motion, but somehow this motion still carries and only 840 women are allowed at that time. So that means that for every sort of five or six men, there's only one woman at that time. And that that stayed in place until 1948 when it's raised slightly. Um, and it's, it's 1957 before that kind of quote is abolished. And then 1974, before the male colleges begin to open their doors to women. So, you know, it, it is a period of change that women are fighting to try and make their voice heard and to try and be recognised on an equal footing with men. And one of the characters in my book, Gilbert Murray, who's a professor of Greek at Oxford, he said that these women are generally you know, more brilliant than the men who are studying there. So it is a sense of sort of frustration as a historian, a female historian, especially when you look back on on what's happening. But I think, I mean, as, as a one point of comparison, it's sort of slightly better than it was in Cambridge. Cambridge women had to wait until 1948 before they got degrees so about 20 years later than Oxford. Okay so you just mentioned Gilbert Murray there and there's also the character of E.R. Dodds who features heavily in the book. I wonder could you tell us a little bit about these two characters please? So Gilbert Murray was one of the the people who taught Morris Bower. He was the most senior classicist at Oxford. He was a Regius professor of Greek which put him in a prime position. So he was a, a major authority figure within the university, but he also had a role. He could be called upon by the government when he needed to advise them. And he had a sort of second hat. He worked for the League of Nations and the League of Nations Union to try and preserve peace in the aftermath of the First World War. And he spoke of, of peace and Greek being his kind of twin concerns throughout his life. And he grew up in Australia, so he had a slightly different um, beginning uh, from a lot of the other characters who I've been writing about. But he came over and he's quite a Victorian figure, um, uh, quite eccentric in his way. And he fell in love with a woman called Mary who'd grown up at Castle Howard in North Yorkshire, which I think many people will know because it was a setting of uh, the, the the ITV version of Brideshead Revisited when that was. So there's another connection there. And he sort of, he lived up on Boar's Hill with Mary. They had five children and he taught Greek. He's very, very dedicated to Greek theatre 
in particular. He drew really interesting parallels between the Greek world and modern Europe and so the, the, the war itself as well. And he also fostered uh, this character, E.R. Dodds, Eric Robertson Dodds, who was just known as Dodds because he didn't really like the name Eric. And he was an Irishman. He kind of specialised in uh, ancient philosophy. Again, another eccentric figure. He had a pet parrot. Um, he held a sort of collection of dogs. He liked to enter his dogs into dog shows uh, with his wife, Bet. And he studied at Oxford, but he was he got himself into sort of a hot water he supported the Easter Rising when he was a student and he was very open about his politics and he was essentially told not to come back again as a result of that. So he couldn't get a job at Oxford in light of his politics. So he became a professor initially at Birmingham instead. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. You really feel that coming off the page of people and you're describing, even if it is something really frivolous, like a garden party or, you know, a, a weekend at some lovely manor or, or whatever else, you, you get a sense of, gosh, they're really living again. As you kind of hinted at there, the this whole period is a, a pretty tempestuous time in international relations. How did life in Oxford reflect what was going on in the outside world? Is sort of the 20s, then went into the 30s. Did the mood within the university grow darker? Did it reflect what was going on elsewhere? Undoubtedly, yeah. I mean, the students were, for the most part, very engaged with what was going on in the outside world, even though they're in this thing, which I think students today still, still talk about the Oxford bubble, and it can seem quite remote and removed from outside politics. But in this period, they were incredibly engaged. And, and as the 20s moved into the 1930s, there's a genuine feeling you get this from reading Charwell, the, the Oxford student newspaper, the editorials and things. That there's a real feeling that the good days are drawing to an end. And that's not really because they're directly affected by things like the general strike in 1926 or the Wall Street crash. But I think those kind of events sort of start to create sort of shockwaves, um, which are gradually felt. And there's a kind of growing sense of unease about events in Germany and Russia and further afield and, you know, the Spanish Civil War coming in as well. And I think, I mean, it was in 1933 that the Oxford Union held its famous king and country debate in which students actually voted that they would not fight for king and country and that made international headlines and really caused a great stir at Whitehall and and that resulted it, it was reflected to an extent by sort of the outside world there was a, a peace ballot was conducted in 1935 in which I think it was 38% of the voting population voted in favour of remaining within the League of Nations for peace and over over 10 million people approved the use of, of non-military sanctions in order to avoid war. You know, there really wasn't the appetite for war at that point in the 1930s and that was really sort of felt among the student body. So rewinding a bit earlier to the early 20s and the roaring 20s, I mean, how outrageous was some of the behaviour in the university during this period? It was pretty outrageous. It's um, so very much, there's a lot of sort of Bullingdon Club um, antics going on. I mean, the kind of stuff that you find in Evelyn Waugh's Decline and Fall with students wrecking each other's rooms, people setting fire to each other's furniture in the middle of the quads, upending their desks and throwing their paperwork away. And, you know, smashing windows. There's a sort of another case of... of um, 
this poor student who had a, a poker shoved through the windows of his college room while he's in bed, sort of reading, and there's sort of shattered glass everywhere. Um, you know, it, it's a carnage and it's disgraceful. I mean, when you think about it today, and I think you, you can think, oh, you know, ha, 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 it's very funny when you read it in a novel. But actually, when you think about it, it's it's really quite unpleasant. And at the end of the day, they just produce a check to cover the damage that was caused. And that's kind of a typical Bullingdon Club thing, which has continued and, and, and persisted um, over time. And so I mean, that was going on. And then I think you sort of have women like Vera Britton looking on and, and seeing this and seeing this is, is really very juvenile behaviour um, at the same time. But, you know, so I, I don't want to go in and sort of thinking, sounding really po-faced about it. I think there's obviously a lot of fun to the Roaring Twenties as well. There are fabulous balls held in the college uh, quads and, you know, wonderful dancers and dinners and, you know, the students are growing cacti and serving um, shellfish out of bathtubs and, you know, dressing quite flamboyantly and really just, you know, having fun. And I think, I think after the First World War, I think this kind of behaviour is a lot more understandable than it is in people today. You know, they've gone through so much and they've suddenly been sort of set free you know, as young people for the first time in the world and they've got this sort of taste of independence and they behave in that way. And I think after they've, what they've been through, I think you're more likely to, to, to view that kind of behaviour in, in, in a completely different way. So as you you've, you said earlier, the mood, the mood kind of darkened in the 30s and, and you write within the book that aspects of antiquity were subverted under the Third Reich and employed as Nazi propaganda. Could, can you elaborate on that and, and tell us how that impacted on Oxford University? Yes. So with the the rise of, of the Nazis in Germany, I mean, Morris Bauer said that the students around him, from his point of view, he, he, that he said that the, the students seem to view this as just another testimony to the kind of indifference and the incompetence of their elders. And there's kind of a, a feeling of growing anger and frustration among the students about that. And as classicists, they were sort of keenly looking on at what was happening in terms of, in Germany in particular, they were looking back at Spartan history, for example, and they were trying to sort of use that almost as a justification for a lot of the policies that they were pursuing. So things like eugenics and sort of exposing, in, in Sparta there was a practice of, of sort of exposing babies when they were born, as in letting them die if they weren't healthy. And these things were kind of taken out of context and they were contorted and there wasn't really any understanding or... Um, consideration given to the fact that obviously medicine moved on a lot since Spartan times to the 20th century. These were these things and people, things were extracted as well from, from Plato. He was another one. His texts were mined, Plato's Republic. Ideas were taken from that and taken out of context and, and misused. And really what you're seeing in this period is a real abuse of classics. So I think as classicists, a lot of the academics felt a real responsibility to champion their subject and, you know, set down the historical record as it was, uh, as a kind of um, protection against some of this this stuff that was coming out. And, you know, it created anxiety, I think, among not just among classicists, but among sort of the broader population as well. I mean, one of the things we talk a lot about is appeasement, you know, today in the, in the 1930s. And, what you have in in the in 1938 in Oxford, there's a by-election that's contested, and the Conservative candidate was a guy called Quinton Hogg, and he pledged support for Chamberlain's policy. And there was really a lot of heckling of him in the streets. You know, people were saying things like a vote for Hogg is a vote for Hitler, 
Um, he actually won the election, but by a lot narrower a margin than Tories were usually expecting uh, in Oxford uh, in that period. Um, so, I mean, there was a sort of a real anxiety uh, about war, you know, uh, uh, among students um, and, you know, probably among some of the academics as well in Oxford. And I sort of close my my book with, with the outbreak of the Second World War as recruitment begins again and the first preparations are laid, you know, because people just don't know exactly what's happening. Um, but it's a real time of fear. Do you detect a, a, a disparity of attitudes um, among the students to the, the outbreak of the two wars? Was there more reticence about going to war for the Second World War than there had been for the First World War among the students? Definitely, because the students, they were you know, of an age to remember the aftermath of the First World War and what had happened. And many of them had lost people in that war. And, you know, there was support for things like Gilbert Murray championing the League of Nations Union. You know, this was, there was the support for this as a peacekeeping aim. You know, the, the people wanted peace to prevail. And and I think, you know, we, we look on things like appeasement quite differently now. And I think there's been a sort of a more revisionist attitude recently uh, to appeasement and sort of looking at it maybe slightly more sympathetically than people have in the past. But I think certainly when you read um, the first volume of Churchill's uh, account of the Second World War, the Gathering Storm in particular, he's quite hard on students for creating an atmosphere of decadence, as he saw it, um, you know, in terms of their sort of reluctance to fight and their sort of preference for for peace in this period. But it, I think it's completely understandable on a human level. And what was Evelyn Waugh's view of the of, of the coming war? Well, he, he, interestingly, he went off to report on the Abyssinian crisis and he controversially did so sort of from sort of the other perspective from, you know, what most people were, were looking at in that period. And I think what's really interesting with war is that he, he's obviously known for writing Brighthead Revisited and Decline and Fall and these novels which are full of the fun and the gaiety of the times. Um, but then, you know, he, he was also witness to, to all of this and he, he he actually managed to sort of write Brideshead sort of, you know, it, it was published in 1945, so it's right on that period. And I think that the book really encapsulates well the stirring feelings of, of what's happening in that period and this feeling of change and this feeling of, of, of loss of control as well and saying goodbye to one way of life and the feeling that there's a new way of life on the horizon, but people aren't quite sure what that is. And that in itself is enough to create a real climate of fear. I know this is kind of outside the scope of your book, but how different was Oxford after the Second World War in, in 1945? How had the war changed the university? Well, it begins to become a little bit more open, I think, because the Second World War brought in a whole load more students. There are a lot more students coming in from state schools, for example, uh, which was obviously a good thing. Um, there are more women coming in. Um, Gilbert Murray himself, he says, you know, he's really pleased to see, he's, he's just sad it took so long for so many, you know, more women to be able to come and have an opportunity to study there. And I think some of the sort of more archaic practices start to go out the window. Like I think throughout the, sort of the 1920s and 1930s, women are not allowed to study sort of one-on-one -on -one with tutors. And that's part of the Oxford system. You know, you have this tutorial system, which is world famous. It's what Oxford is sort of known for. You, you're either in, on your own or, or you're in a pair, sometimes with a, with a tutor. But there was a kind of anxiety that women couldn't be left alone with a, a man in case the relationships have developed between the two of them. So they'd have to be paired up with another woman in order to go off and have that. So there is a sort of the, the, the seeds of change are being laid. Um, people are 
beginning to sort of women start to, 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 to have a bit more opportunity to be able to speak in the Oxford Union, for example, in the early 1960s. Um, the male colleges, as I say, start to open up in the 1970s, but some of them aren't open to women until the late 1980s, which is quite shocking. Um, so it's gradual, but I think actually a lot more change has happened probably in the last 20 years than than did happen sort of between the end of the Second World War and 1990, say. I think we've seen a lot more positive change in sort of in terms of accessibility in recent times than we did in the early part of the 20th century. And finally, Daisy, how did your research into the book change your view of, of Britain and Oxford between the wars? Is there anything you, you know really surprised you? What would you really take away from, from your research into the book? So I spent a lot of time in the archives in Oxford, and this was fortunately pre-pandemic. You know, I spent most of 2019 sitting reading letters uh, in various colleges and in the Bodleian and looking at kind of spools of microfilm with lots of these more sort of delicate letters preserved on them. And I, I think what I what I took away from from reading those is is just sort of how how joyous Oxford was for for students in this period. I think if you've been a student at Oxford, it's something that stays with you forever, and it is a kind of a life changing experience. And I think, but particularly for for people who were studying, you know, in, in really quite difficult times, and like after the second World, the First World War in particular, in that period, you realise how much it actually meant to them and how much it represented freedom and how, you know, it, it was kind of, a, in the book, I describe this period as being sort of a window that lets in a kind of sliver of light between two dark shadows. And you really feel that coming off the page of people and you're describing, even if it is something really frivolous, like a garden party or, you know, a, a weekend at some lovely manor or, or whatever else, you, you get a sense of, gosh, they're really living again and I, and I feel slightly uneasy about comparing it to sort of you know our sense of freedom now after the the pandemic but I think you know that first time you walk out after a long lockdown you feel maybe you know one hundredth of, of what it must have been like for for those people to be able to walk into a new university a new city or really you know a very old one but something that looks so different from 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 what they'd seen before and that sort of sense of exhilaration and that rush and that excitement and that real hunger for life that came out of it. And that's just, I think, something that, that I'll take away from me from reading all these letters. That was Daisy Dunn. Not far from Brideshead, Oxford Between the Wars is published by Weidenfeld and Nicholson. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. 